Today, what I want to do is something a little bit different. Somebody has already come up to me and said, bro, there's a lot of blanks in the bulletin today. That's because the Bible has a lot of answers. Isn't it that simple? Um, We are going to do something a little bit different. Uh, We want to get the message from the Word. I don't want to impose my own thoughts or ideas. Um, But we're not looking at a specific passage. We're looking at an entire book. So in one sense, you are going to get an overview of the entire book of 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last word. Um, He's about to die, and he is passing on some wisdom to his protege. And here's the thing that's awesome. In some sense, 2 Timothy is Paul's baccalaureate speech. He's getting ready to graduate and and, 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 uh, die. And he wants to leave some words of wisdom to... uh, his understudy, his protege. So um, in, in light of kind of baccalaureate and graduate stuff, I brought one of my favorite books outside of the Bible. It is a book called World History According to College Students. And these are all true things that college students have written on college exams. Be afraid, be very afraid. The, uh, the um, <laughs> I'm laughing already, that's not good. The subtitle is <laughs> From the Stoned age, sounds like the 60s, to the Canadian Missile Crisis. There, some of you will catch that later. There was no Canadian Missile Crisis. From Joan of Arc to Florence of Arabia, and from, from Mount Arafat to the Berlin Mall. Um, here's, here's what college students wrote on a final exam related to ancient history. There there was Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. Lower Egypt was actually further up than Upper Egypt, which was, of course, lower down than the upper part. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh, I need a map. That's crazy. (laughs) Ancient Babylon was similar to Egypt because of the differences they had apart from each other. Egypt, for example, only had Egyptians... But Babylon had Sumerians, Akkadians, and Canadians, to name just a few. (laughs) Here, let's get into some Bible history. The the history of the Jewish people begins with Abraham, Isaac, and their 12 children. (laughs) Judaism was the first monolithic religion and had one big god named Yahoo. Old Testament prophets included Moses, Amy, and Confucius. Evidently, uh, they believed that there was someone named Judy, J-U-D-Y, who was the founder of Judaism. So go, <laughs> go figure that one out. Moses was told by Jesus to lead the people out of Egypt into the Sahara Desert. And the book of Exodus describes this trip and the amazing things that happened on it, including the Ten Commandments, Various special effects <laughs> and the building of the Suez Canal. <laughs> oh, goodness, we need to pray for our graduates. That is for sure. Um, oh, my goodness. So here's, here's the deal. On a day like this, it, we need to remember the words of Mark Twain, who said he never allowed schooling to interfere with his education. That's, that's a good word. Don't ever allow schooling to interfere with your education. We look at Paul, and Paul says, hey, um, schooling is, I don't think Paul would despise schooling, but he would say that there's a curriculum called life from which, um, really, graduation is death. We We don't graduate 
from the school of life. And so he wants to give final words. He wants to help them pass the test of life. And so in 2 Timothy, he describes challenges and he says, the world is selfish and opposed to the knowledge of God. What do you need to know as a young man to make it? How do you make it? <clears throat> and I want to start off, there are really three points, but the first point's got a bunch of subpoints. That's why you've got all the blanks. And I want to direct your attention to a, a strange little phrase um, that is repeated twice in chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 14. In, in the Greek, it is consistently translated as, but you. So he's establishing a contrast. Here's the way the world is, but you. And then four verses later, here's the way the world is, but you. He's trying to, make, uh, trying to establish a point that we are to be different because we are disciples. We are called to be different because we are disciples. Listen, that is a good word for high school graduates. That's a good word for all of us. You think about, um, you know, one of the challenges I think in our country, and I think you have, you have realized this, is there is no unity anymore. There is no common definition of what it means to be an American. We are now a nation of special interest groups who don't like each other. That's, that's really what has happened, is everyone has become a special interest group. And there is no, no, no unity uh, related to this. And so there are all kinds of things that can make you different. You could be a vegetarian or a vegan. You could be a Gamecock fan or a Clemson fan. Um, there are different ways to identify yourself based upon the social mores and customs of our society. But there is not anything that should make you more different than your identity as a disciple of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says, what Paul says about this difference being a Christian makes. You, that's the but you, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. And how did you learn this, what you have firmly believed? You've learned it from childhood and you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He gives this great contrast in, in the beginning part of chapter 3, where he says, listen, the world's messed up. We're going to hear the list in just a second. It's not good. It sounds like um, the Apostle Paul was at the Galleria Mall yesterday. It sounds like a modern-day snapshot of what the world is like. And he goes, guys, listen, I understand. This is what the world is like, but you, you've listened to my teaching. Continue on in that. Stick with it. Don't be like the world. Be committed to Christ. Here's uh, part, of the, part of the issue is I think sometimes in, in the way that we have, um, I'll use this word, marketed Christianity, okay? The way that we have marketed Christianity is really no different than you market toothpaste, is we try to find a way, if you're on an elevator ride with someone and you have 30 seconds to talk about them, how do you talk about God's thousands-year-old revelation covering 66 books and 2,500 years written in three different languages by 40 different authors? How do you do that in 30 seconds? Well, we try to break it down into bite-sized pieces. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, if all you eat for your main sustenance are crackers like that, you're not going to be real healthy. And I think a lot of times we, we have <clears throat> reduced the gospel to a message that you believe once and for all, and then you're done. So we make 
in an older day, walking the aisle, praying a prayer, and shaking a hand, the sum total of the Christian message. Now, it is true, the gospel is a message that is to be believed, but it also is a message that is supposed to be lived out. That's called discipleship. And, and in one instance, the only way people can actually verify that you believe what you believe is if the message that you profess to follow actually changes the way that you make decisions. So he's saying, be different because you're a disciple. Believing the gospel is not a one-time and you're done deal. Like that is, that, That's a false gospel. It should transform your life and permeate everything about you and change the way that you think, the way that you act, what you aspire to. The thing that gets you right, the gospel, is the thing that keeps you right. You don't ever earn the gospel, but the gospel calls you to live in a different way. So here's the issue. Paul is saying here with this first point, but you, be different, be different, be different, be different. Does the Bible give any clues to how we're to be different? It does. It doesn't just issue a a broad command, be, be different because you're a disciple. It actually spells it out, and that's what's so awesome about uh, Second Timothy, as he does this, <clears throat> first sub-point, he says this, develop the ability to fan out fear. Develop the ability to fan out fear. Now, obviously, if he has to give the command, don't be afraid, why has he got to give it? Because we're afraid. Now, nobody here is, you know, like cowering and abject, you know, fear of something, but every single one of you will have felt the Holy Spirit prick you to say something about your faith and you've not done it. Oh, well, if I do that at work, uh, I might lose my job. Or if I say this to a friend, he might, we might not be friends anymore. What is that? It's fear. It's fear. So I want you to look at what he says. Uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and then we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 15, and then we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame, to rekindle the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Here's, here's a trick question for you. The Bible says this clearly. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if God has not given it, who has? different personalities here, okay? Some of you are optimists, some of you are pessimists. I'm not picking on personalities. I'm just saying if you struggle with fear, that is not from God. And you have to acknowledge that if you're going to beat it. It says that God has given us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And don't have worldly definitions of power. This is power to do what God wants you to do. Humanly impossible, but possible through God's spirit. He says, listen, don't be afraid. You need to rekindle. And I love the, the word when he, he talks about kindling. That is not an electronic device, young people. Um, some of you have no idea what a kindling is apart from a device that you read books on. Kindling is how you make a fire. And you don't throw the big logs on first. You, you, you put the stuff that's easy to burn. You put maybe, maybe cotton balls or newspaper or things that will burn easily so that you can get a flame going that then you can put larger sticks on top and then finally the big logs. But you have to nurture it and you have to fan it into existence. You have to make it come to life. You want that fire to roar. And it doesn't start off roaring. It starts off crackling. And you fan it and it gets a little bit bigger. And then finally, 
keeps the whole family warm, and everybody can put their, their hot dogs or their s'mores on. And so he uses this language of kindling or reactivating or reviving or causing new life to come or causing to blaze. And he's giving this command because we are tempted to fear. Now, why do we, why do we fear? It's really simple. Life is a challenge. Like, do you have, anybody have to deal with people this week? I want you to hear what Paul dealt with. 2 Timothy 1, verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Why would Paul mention these two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes? Because Timothy knew him, knew them. They were some kind of leader. And the heat got turned up enough that they decided to get out of the pot. Paul, you're on your own. Not to mention that Paul's thousands of miles from any kind of social network, <clears throat> any kind of peer group. He's on his own, and two guys that he counted on have just said, too much for me, peace out, we're leaving. Paul says, I'm by myself. Anybody like being by yourself? Anybody feel like you're by yourself a little bit? Yeah, Paul, Paul says that's one of the things why we don't need to have a spirit of fear is life is going to be tough. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And tell me if this doesn't sound like something out of the Herald or Charlotte Observer. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness, they deny its power. Avoid such people. This is Walmart. This is, this is what's going to happen. You have to be shining lights in the midst of darkness, and it's going to be difficult. So fan out fear. Learn how to appropriate the power that God has given to you. Secondly, he says this, make sure you know his purpose for your life. Make sure you know his purpose for your life. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, Therefore, Paul's telling Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He says, guys, it's really important to understand what his purpose is, that he's called you with a holy calling, and that you might be called to suffer for the gospel by the power of God. Listen, suffering for the gospel doesn't sound so good, but suffering by the power of God sounds like I can make it through that. <clears throat> he says, no, <clears throat> no, his purpose. And we have to be reminded of that because we, <clears throat> it's kind of like little kids that learn how to say no. No parent teaches their kid how to say no. You probably did. You just didn't even know it, that you taught your kid to say no. Like, it, it's probably your fault. I'm not trying to heap parent guilt on you. But kids know how to say no kind of naturally, subconsciously. And when you wake up in the morning, okay, like a computer has a default setting. Your computer gets haywire. You set it back to its default settings. Your default setting kicks in every morning when you wake up. Is your default setting to do your purposes or to do his purposes. Don't lie in church. Listen, this is not just for all the high school guys that slept, spent the night last night and probably make sure he stays awake, Kelly, okay? Elbow him. 
This is not just a message, this is not just a baccalaureate message for young people. This applies to old people too. Like every day, you're tempted to crawl off the altar. The Bible says we're supposed to offer our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. I don't want to do that. And I have to pray every morning, God, I'm crawling off. Like, help me to stay here. Help me to be committed to your purposes because it is so easy to be committed to mine. I don't even have to think about it. I'm committed to my purposes and I want to be committed to your purposes more than to my purposes. Is there any purpose that you can find that would be better than God's? I mean, honestly, evaluate, put it on the balance. My purposes, God's purposes. The problem is we don't think. There's not even a scale. It's just a one-armed scale. My purposes. It's not how Christians are supposed to live. We're supposed to be concerned and consumed with God's purposes for our life. Number three. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, protect that which is most precious. Protect that which is most precious. Verses 13 and 14 say this. Follow or retain. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. <clears throat> when, when I lived in Kentucky, before we moved to South Carolina... I had the opportunity to um, train with uh, military units at Fort Knox. And if there's anything you know about Fort Knox, they had a, a really cool thing. They had a thing called, the, and it, nobody knows about this, it's called the Zussman Urban Warfare Combat Center. That's where I would go. And basically, they make you dress up in all kinds of um, foreign gear, and Delta Force and Navy SEALs come in and they shoot you with high-end paintball guns in real-life situations like hostage negotiations. It was awesome, really cool. Um, but the things that Fort Knox was famous for is it used to be where the chief um, army armored division was, so they had all kinds of armored history, cool museums you could go through, static displays you could climb on, all kinds of stuff about General Patton and Battle of the Bulge, great stuff. Um, And then it has actually Fort Knox, which is where we keep the gold, at least until that whole James Bond movie. I don't know what happened after that. Um, <clears throat> they shrunk it down or they did something. So you, Fort Knox is the place where it's really carefully guarded. As a matter of fact, um, there's sidewalks that are around it, and the sidewalks are really far away from the building. There's no trees for like 500 yards. There's no way to sneak up on the building. There's drones, there's cameras, there's uh, machine guns, there's everything. So if you are walking on the sidewalk, you know, and you're, I don't know what it is, 100 yards to the building, and you step onto the grass you probably have 23 machine guns pointed at you. You don't even know it. Why? Because they are guarding what is precious. So let's say we take a church field trip and we go to Fort Knox and we say, we want to go in the vault. We want to see it. And we walk in there and guess what we find in the vault? Old receipts that have been in the pocket of your jeans and washed several times. Some loose change and oh yeah, some belly button lint. That surprise anybody? Yeah, because it's not precious. You don't guard something that's not precious. And he's saying you need to understand what's most important in life. And typically what God says is most important and what you say are most important are two different things. We need to find a way to agree with God to say what he says is most important. What is that good deposit entrusted to us? It's the gospel. You've got to guard what is precious. And I love how he says this. He says, he says follow the pattern of sound words, pursue, it's command. Hold on to, seize, retain, get a grip on it. 
He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Watch, observe, follow, protect by taking careful measures. That's what we're supposed to do. Guard what is precious. And here's the problem. We are so concerned with externals that we don't look at internals. And here, here's how it happens, okay? Um, maybe even some of our graduates, you've experienced this. You come to church and there's, you use these and thou's and bless you's and bless your hearts. And then Monday through Saturday, you have a completely different vocabulary. The reason that that kind of hypocrisy exists is you have not guarded your heart. You've not guarded the gospel. And you think telling jokes like the world tells and, and, and making fun of people because of ethnicity or gender or disability is acceptable. Or using foul language and, you know, hey man, that's just what everybody at the bar does. You're not guarding. You're not protecting what is precious. And the Bible has a really easy answer to that. That's hypocrisy. You are not possessing what you say you, you are not possessing what you say you are professing. You have to guard it. And that's hard because it's not a church service on Sunday. That's easy. That's objective. That's external. But the issue is, has the gospel really found a way to reside in your heart where it has a controlling influence over what you do? Protect what is precious. Number four, Paul says, don't hesitate to do hard work. Don't hesitate to do hard work. Oh, I mean, that sounds great. Chapter two, verses one through six, he gives all these beautiful word pictures. I love this. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, this first image is the image of a steward who has been entrusted with something to be used for the master's benefit and spread to other people. Um, he is, uh, this is a classic passage talking about discipleship. What is discipleship? Taking what has been entrusted with you and sharing it with other people. You're to be a steward. He goes on to give other metaphors or word pictures of doing hard work. Verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What happens if you're not a good soldier? You're dead. You gotta work hard to be a good soldier. I mean, life's on the line. Verse 5, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What's an athlete got to do? Work hard. No, nobody's an athlete to come in to get an honorable mention. Everybody wants to be the first one to cross the finish line if you're an athlete. That's why you train. You work hard. Verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to be the first to share of the crops. What happens if you're not a good farmer? You die. You have no food. So all of these metaphors for working hard, be a steward who does his job well. Be a good soldier who soldiers well. Be an athlete who's competing according to the rules. Be a farmer who gets a large crop. And then first, verse 15, it kind of sums it all up. It says, do your best to present yourself to God is one approved, a diligent worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. Why does the Bible have to encourage us to hard work? Because at the end of the day, every single one of us is lazy in some way, right? We're not all lazy the same way, but we all want some downtime and we're tempted to not work hard sometimes. The truth is that the road to success is dotted with many tempting parking spaces. But you've got to keep moving. You pull into the parking lot, and guess what you're not on anymore? The road to success. <laughs> so don't allow the tempting parking spaces to distract you from the road to success. We're told to be diligent, to apply ourselves, to devote ourselves, to be fervent and zealous and eager for being our, the work that we do. 
There's the idea of intense effort and zealous motivation that we are taking pains or making every effort to present ourselves to God as a worker who has nothing to be ashamed of. It says that one of the things that we're supposed to do is rightly handle the word of truth. The, the word for rightly handle, handle is orthotomeo. That sounds familiar to you even though you don't know, know Greek. Ortho is where we get the word orthodontia for dentists. They make your, unless you're from Kentucky, they make your teeth straight. And so that's what, what they do. The idea of handling accurately is cutting in a straight line, t- teaching accurately, guiding correctly. Uh, it's the idea of cutting a path, of cutting a path cross-country. Now, you've never cut a, cut a path cross-country um, by yourself, but you have benefited from it. You know what they're called? Roads. I mean, think about what someone has had to do for you to be able to drive to church to get here. I don't know who drove the furthest distance to get here, but um, I crossed at least one creek that had a bridge. That bridge wasn't here. I, I don't, I'd, I'd have to find an alternate route. And so they, they cut reliable transportation for me to get where I'm going to. And when it says handling the word, it doesn't mean that you have to be a preacher behind a pulpit. It means that you need to be able to handle to help people get from point A to point B. That's what you're called to do as a disciple. It's not, hey, I got a coworker. Will you talk to him? Um, are you a disciple? Yes. Are you handling accurately the word? Yes. Okay, well, let me coach you on what you need to do to reach your friend. We outsource everything nowadays. And the Bible says part of being a disciple is the hard work of learning what the Bible says so that we can give good news to other people. There is no elevator to success. You have to take the stairs. Everybody wants to have the benefits of hard work. They just don't actually want to walk up the stairs. They want to ride the escalator of life, and there is no escalator for life. If you're going to be the kind of disciple that works hard, you're going to take the stairs. You're not going to take the elevator. Number five. When he talks about being different as a disciple, he's giving these five great things. We're not fearful. We know our purpose in life. We're guarding what is precious. We're working hard in those efforts. Number five, realize that purity needs to be pursued. Realize that purity needs to be pursued. Verse, uh, verses 21 and 22 of 2 Timothy 2. <clears throat> it says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Why do we say purity needs to be pursued? Because I think that by most Christians, purity is desired, but desire doesn't get you there. You know what desire is? Desire is sitting in a rocking chair thinking that you're going somewhere. You're doing, you're doing a lot of work, but you're not going anywhere. It gives you something to do. Hey, I'm desiring it. Man, I'm desiring it. Like, you would all be millionaires if desire would get you money. Man, you desire money. Desire money doesn't get you money. You've got to work for it. Desiring purity doesn't get you one inch further in the process of sanctification. It's pursuing it that happens. Apart from pursuing it, you're not going to get it. I love the way that it says it because it's both positive and negative. It says, you know, you cleanse yourself. That's positive. Flee from youthful lusts. Man, the challenge is, guys, listen. This goes back to the guarding thing. But we just kind of take, we roll with the punches, man. We take what comes. And the truth is, all kinds of us are involved in things that aren't righteous. We just allow it to happen. 
You know, I'm not thinking about it. Well, you know, I, I didn't intend for that to happen. It just happened. Well, you're being a dummy. That's a Greek phrase, by the way. Don't, don't be a dummy. Think about what you're doing. Think about the consequences of your action. It's not inconsequential. You've got to think about it because purity, nobody stumbles into purity. I hope you heard that. Nobody stumbles into purity. You have to work hard to be pure. Second point, we'll wrap this up really quickly. There's the temptation for this to sound like a, a do-gooder sermon. It's not it at all. Because in his second point, the point is this, Paul's telling us to remember the foundation for this focus. To remember the foundation for this focus. He gives us two, two um, focuses. One is personal. One is corporate. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, I suffer, but I'm not ashamed. You may have heard this verse before. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says very personally, why am I willing to suffer for the gospel? Because I know it's for my good. I know God is for my good. Why do I go through these challenging circumstances? It's for my good. I would not choose it. I don't want it, but I trust God. God is guarding me. God is preserving me. He's going to get me to the finish line. From a very personal sense, Paul just says, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which has been entrusted to me until that day. God's going to get it done. But it's not just personal. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, he brings in a corporate perspective that is very helpful. He says this, Remember Jesus Christ, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is never bound. Therefore, I endure everything, not for my sake, but for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's his perspective? It is all about Jesus. I can, I, can, I can trust in Jesus to help me fan out fear. Why? Because God is more powerful than anything that I could fear. I can trust God not only to fan out fear, I, I, because of Christ, I will pursue his purpose because there's no other purpose that deserves my effort. What can you do that is better than God's purposes for your life? His whole focus is on Christ. I will guard the gospel because there's nothing that is more precious than the gospel. I will work hard because it's not my 401k that deserves my best effort. It's God and His gospel. It's all because of Jesus. I'm going to work hard and I'm willing to suffer, not only because suffering might actually be purifying for me, but it's actually good for other people who don't believe in Jesus yet. It's good for me, and it's good for others. It's not all pompous pride and selfish ambition. It is for the glory of God and for the good of others. I will pursue purity, not so I can look down my nose at people that don't live up to my moral standard. I'm going to pursue purity because I want the way that I live. Uh, Titus 2.10 says this. I want the way that I live to adorn the gospel. Not a beautiful way to say it. That your life can make... The gospel is imminently beautiful. But the way you flesh it out and the way that you live can, can make it more beautiful to others. Like, wow, I really like the way Stephen, Stephen's living for Jesus. You know, different calling, different family, different job, different, lives in a different place than I do. But he, he's adorning the gospel with his life. Man, I, I love the way Patrick's doing it. I love the way Alan's doing that. I'm, I'm pursuing purity not to be able to puff myself up and go, you know, look at all those people that use bad language or do this or do that. No, I'm, I'm pursuing purity for God's purposes. Third and finally, he says this, 
Recognize your charge. Recognize your charge, your command, and realize a testimony. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 10. Come on, Paige. Here's the charge, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. You may never occupy a pulpit, but the Bible would say if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a preacher. You may never exposit a passage of Scripture, but how you live communicates the truth of what you believe. The Word should direct your actions and your decisions and your attitudes. In in all of this, Paul is trying to drive home a point, and it's that very first point. Be different because you're a disciple. Don't be different because you're a vegan. Don't be different because you're a libertarian. Don't be different because you're whatever. Be different because you're a disciple. You take your marching orders from the Scriptures, and your desire is to please an audience of one. That's why you need to be different. Be a disciple. And when we talk about discipleship, this is just a little bit of a tangent. You know, people fight about what, dis- what is discipleship. You know, people do that. So they give you three options. Is discipleship doctrinal? Do you need to know the truth of the Scriptures? Yes or no? Yes. There are some people that say that's all discipleship is. Just, it's, it's learning. It's going deep. Nothing wrong with going deep. There are some people who say that discipleship is all personal. You need to be a, a holy, you know, don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or run around with the girls who do. It's all personal. Sanctification. Is discipleship holiness, sanctification, moral purity? Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to transform your life. But there are some people who say, no, 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 no. Discipleship is going out and doing good works and sharing the gospel. That's what discipleship is. It's missional. So the question is, is discipleship doctrinal? Or is it personal? Or is it missional? The answer is, yes, it's all of those. And you see this in Paul's instructions to Timothy. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard the deposit. Uh, Flee youthful lusts. Be pure. Do, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Suffer for the sake of the gospel so that others might believe. This is our charge. You may never, again, fill a pulpit, but you can be a part of gospel expansion. And I love the way he concludes this to Timothy. Paul's last words. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. What in the world is that? Evidently, evidently Paul's last appeal to the um, court of Nero didn't quite go as he expected. Nero was crazy. Uh, He had burned Rome and needed a scapegoat, and Christians became it. So regardless of Paul's personal innocence, he would die a martyr's death. In church history, we don't know this from the Scriptures, church history says that Paul ran to the chopping block. Not ashamed. Writing his last letter, he says, guys, listen, this is my last note to you. Because I don't know if they're coming for me, it's going to happen eventually. But I'm already being poured out, and I love this. He uses sacrificial terminology as a drink offering to the Lord. 
in the time of my, not death, departure. What's a departure? It's like Keith and Amanda Patterson. They left for Alaska yesterday. They're, they're departing. They're going to a different destination. Paul doesn't say death is final. It's like going on a cruise, you know? Next port of call, heaven. Can't wait. What are we supposed to wear? I don't know. Diapers. I don't know. You got wings. Get a little heart. I don't know what you're supposed to wear. This is the time of my departure is at hand. You've heard these words. I have fought the fight. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. No guilt in life. No fear in death. The power of Christ working through Paul. He says, I'm ready to go. I'm good. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. And when he stands before God, here's what's amazing, okay? I don't care how pompous you are. You know, we, you think about Adam and Eve standing naked before God in the garden, and they know that they've done wrong. Um, when you stand naked before the Lord, don't you expect maybe even just a little bit of a rebuke? You're not going to be humiliating to stand before the Lord who knows everything that you've ever done. Your secret motives, the things that you thought you didn't say that are still bad, he knows everything. And Paul says amazingly that he's going to stand before the Lord and not expect rebuke, but in fact he expects a reward. Verse 8, I know henceforth that there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Oh, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, Timothy, I'm giving you advice. Be a disciple. Let that make you different. Don't be afraid. Don't cower to the spirit of this world. Uh, be pure. Pursue purity. Know God's purpose and exert yourself working hard in that direction. Remember that the foundation is not to make yourself a better person. Good people go to hell every day. But to make yourself a disciple, a follower of Christ, let that foundation be your focus. And as you do that, you will recognize that you have lived out a charge to be a preacher of the gospel. And you will inherit a testimony that says, I, I've fought, I've run as hard as I could, and now I can, I can know that I will stand before God and He will reward me, not because of anything that I've done, because Jesus has saved me and radically transformed all of my life because I am a disciple. Let me ask you this. If as a church we could vote on that and we could decide the future of our high school graduates today, would we want these things that we talked about today? If we could just vote and make it happen. Any, anybody for it? Anybody want that for Sam? Want that for Ryan? Want that for JP? Want that for Donovan? Oh, wouldn't it be easy? That'd be the easy way for us just to, by proxy, vote for them and do it. But it would eliminate what Paul just said about working hard. Be a good soldier. Be a diligent farmer. Diligent workman. Run. Be an athlete. And you have to exert yourself. So the question is, no matter where you're at in the curriculum of life, no matter where you're at in the race, whether you're at the beginning, the middle, or the end, are you running the race well? Are you really trying to be a disciple or you just show up because you want people to see you on Sunday? You playing the game? Are you asking God to transform even the wicked parts of your heart that you don't even want to acknowledge are there? That's what a disciple does. And it makes all the difference in the world. Father, I pray today that you help us to treasure this message of discipleship, that you help us to 
be amazed at what God has done for us in Christ, not only forgiving us of our sins, but giving us a new life to walk in. Father, the challenge is some of us are just so happy with the old life that we had. We don't see its destruction. We don't see its despicability. We don't see its stench of death. Help us to love the things that you want us to love. Father, we know that in all, it's not hard for religion just to be an external thing. And we know that this has to begin in our hearts. It has to affect our minds. It has to affect our hands and our feet, what we do. And we ask for you to do your cleansing work in our life, to help us to confess ways that we have not desired you enough to ask for you to work in our hearts. We ask you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.